You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. This episode is brought to you by Palo Alto Networks, the leader in cybersecurity. As AI-driven attacks increase, organizations can't afford to have network security that's stuck in the past. Discover how Palo Alto Networks can help you predict what's coming and proactively secure against it with a zero-trust, AI-powered network security platform built to secure whatever, whenever, wherever. To learn more, visit paloaltonetworks.com slash network security platform. Hello, and welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Peter Ernest, the executive director of the museum. I served for some 36 years in the Central Intelligence Agency, largely as what is called an operations officer or a case officer. Every month we'll be bringing you interesting talks with visitors, with authors, and with others who have something to do with the world of intelligence and espionage. My guest today is Gail Harris. I should say Captain Gail Harris. Uh, Gail Harris retired from the Navy after nearly 30 years of service, now lives in Colorado, and she was the first African-American to hold a combat intelligence position in 1973 when she was assigned to that position. And she has been in the field of intelligence ever since. And we wanted to talk to Gail today because she'll be doing a program tonight. Uh, She's done a book called A Woman's War, Gail Harris, The Professional and Personal Journey of the Navy's First African-American Female Intelligence Officer. So let me ask you, Gail, as we begin, when you and I were talking earlier, you said something along the lines of, when I went into the Navy and started out, uh, I knew there were going to be challenges because of, of who and what I was. Aside from what field you wanted to, could you just touch on that as we start out? Sure. Uh, being in the Naval Intelligence Officer was a childhood dream. So I should say when I joined the Navy, the recruiter told me it, the field wasn't yet open to women. So, But she thought there was a, a really great man who was uh, the Chief of Naval Operations, Admiral Zumwalt, but she thought the field might be opening. And sure enough, it was, and I was the fourth woman to go through Navy training. It was a 20-week school, and numbers two and three were still there. That's how new it was. And so I asked, I said I'd like to go to an aviation squadron, and they told me it wasn't open to women. Not only that, I didn't belong there. I didn't even belong in the Navy. But I persevered, and I learned that the Air Force was sending their female intelligence officers to uh, aviation squadrons in Vietnam. And so I learned that there was a federal law that prohibited women from going on any ship that might serve in the combat. And since the first job was as an aviation intelligence officer, then that meant that since most Navy squadrons went on aircraft carriers, that I couldn't go. So I came back the second day of school, and I said, why can't I go to one of the Navy's land-based aviation squadrons? And whenever the topic came up, you know, I, I said the same thing, and I worked hard. 
and they decided to choose me as a test case, not just for African-American women, but for all. And they said that the Navy decided to send me for two reasons. They said, first off, I was very good, you know, in what I did, you know, as a student, I'd done well. And the second was they said they believed that my sense of humor would allow the guys to accept me. They said in an aviation squadron that male intelligence officers have a hard time getting accepted. They said, let alone female. And they said, the fact that you're a female and black, you're a double minority. But we think with your sense of humor that you can fit in. So right away I knew that I had uh, like a double whammy. And the advantage that I had, you know, my dad drilled into my head whenever I called up whining about being a woman and being dumped on in the workplace. He taught me, and I found it's true, that everyone is discriminated against themselves, you know, gets, faces discrimination at some point in their life. And that the advantage that I would have is that if I ran into it, you know, it wouldn't be unexpected like a lot of other people, you know, who are fat, old, tall, bald, whatever, you know, come from a different part of the country uh, than your boss. Like if you grew up in New Jersey like I did and you got a boss from California, you know, you don't know. It, the workplace is a strange place at times. So that gave me uh, a heads up and also the fact that the guys, it took a while for them to accept me professionally, uh, made me dig deeper and work harder. And not only did I work harder, but I worked smarter because I sat down with them and I said, what do you need from the intelligence community to do your job better? And that's a process that not everyone in the intelligence community gets. Uh, the criticism on the military side of the house is that the intelligence community is clueless, doesn't understand mission success, we operate behind the green door. We don't share information with the people who need it. Well, I started out knowing that I was in a profession that served. So every single job that I took, that was the focus. How can intelligence support mission success? And that's something now that uh, is being reemphasized. Uh, the senior military intelligence officer in Afghanistan put out an excellent paper and his criticism of the intelligence community was exactly what I just said, that they didn't fo not focusing on mission success, and you know they, they're not telling them the types of information that they need for the mission, which in this instance is not just the location of IEDs and more conventional weapons, but also uh, more information about the local population, the dynamics, the economy, who are the bad guys in the community, who are the good guys, that type of stuff. And so that any information that the warfighter needs that is what you, as an intelligence officer, has to provide. I think it's interesting. You touched on this earlier, this idea that as an intelligence officer, whether you were black, green, or whatever, it wasn't automatic that people would turn to you for one thing or another. You, in a sense, had to sell yourself. I mean, it wasn't just a question of saying we're here to serve. You had to demonstrate what it was that you had that would help them. It, it was it was a, you were you were in a sales position virtually exactly and i think you always are because people even people within the intelligence community because of the class way things are classified you often don't know what's available to you and so you have to go up to your boss and and say well i've studied this problem and are you aware that the intelligence community has this capability like for instance uh for the first gulf war I was the intelligence officer for one of the Navy's airborne intelligence collection squadrons. It was, in fact, their largest. And we were going to provide the intelligence support 
we had three detachments, one in uh, Turk and Suda Bay, supporting the strikes that came in against Iraq over Turkey, one in the Persian Gulf, and one in the Red Sea, supporting strikes coming from against Iraq in that direction. And the problem was that there was no uh, communication support available, meaning that there was no way to get intelligence information to the flight crews before they took off. And then when they did come back, we had no way to send the information out to anybody. So I got in touch with the Office of Naval Intelligence and involved a lot of research. At first, I should say, give props to the CIA, because at first they let us hang out and read messages in their spaces, but they got sick of us after a while <laughs> and kicked us out. And uh, so the Office of Naval Intelligence came up with a communication system. Basically, you could plug it into any commercial phone line and a souped-up fax, and you can send and receive countless amounts of message, intelligence message traffic. And that system worked so well, it was widely used after the war. So that's an example of knowing a need, a requirement for the warfighter. And some people would say, well, what's that got to do with intelligence? Well, the best intelligence in the world, if you can't get it out to people, it's worthless. If it's just going to sit in your desk. When the airplane was airborne, of course, they could sh send out short spot reports. But things were moving so quickly during the Gulf War, and there are a lot of weapon systems to include SCUDs, which we didn't do that great a job of tracking, but SCUDs, uh, mobile surface-to-air missile systems, they moved them, Saddam moved them around all the time. So you didn't want planes shot down because you didn't have the most recent information if you had no way to get it out. Uh, so there's all kinds of reasons. You know, some people say that an intelligence analyst, you just sit there and, you know, you read stuff and then you put out, you know, your, your thoughts. Well, that's only one part of the process. You've got to get it out to people. And then you also have to figure out how to get it out to them in the time and format that they need. And if, if, if it goes out 12 hours later and you need it to put it out an hour after you get it or 10 minutes after you get it, you've not done your job. Well, I noticed you served in a variety of, of areas, including Kosovo and, and then later in the Gulf War. What was the most challenging of these? I think probably the most challenging was that federated intelligence support that we did in, in support of Kosovo, because that was a new form of <coughs> intelligence support, which is now the normal way, invented by a Navy captain named Hal Neal, who worked at United States Central Command, and essentially just using the wonders of technology, the information technology re revolution, you can support uh, real-time combat information from any place in the world to any other location. The challenge was because it had not been done before and not everyone was aware that we were doing it or why. Like I remember uh, during a meeting, a yearly meeting at the Naval Intelligence Commander called for all the senior Navy people and I went there and I told him what I was doing and normally he liked me <laughs> so I was kind of surprised at what happened. He said, well, who gave you the authority to do that? I said, well, the European Command called up and asked me to do it. And he said, that's not the way we do business. And it went downhill from there, and that's the closest. I, it was probably the worst in all of my life that I'd ever been eviscerated and in front of my peers. And it's the closest I came to ever crying in public, but I did not. I stood my ground. Because from his perspective, and probably what I should have done, is informally giving him more of a heads up on what I was doing because it just was not the way the intelligence community did business. So he just thought, oh, you know, you terrible person and blah, blah. And I'm saying, but 
the European Command and the Joint Chiefs of Staff. They've given us lots of kudos. They, they like us. They want us to do more. And so I think that was the hardest. The other part of that was even within the organization, uh, the United States Strategic Command, there were some people who uh, didn't think we should be doing that. It wasn't, we had a, a mission, it was after the Cold War, obviously, uh, but we still uh, were primarily, our command was responsible for the strategic triad, so we were focused on issues related to that. But because we were at the time primarily a planning command, we could afford to take the people and the assets and devote them toward a real-time combat situation. And before I even went up to my four-star and asked for his approval, I asked my department heads, I said, how long can we support Kosovo without any degradation in our mission? And they said 90 days, because these people were pretty sharp, so they were pretty far ahead. And so when European Command, when I got back to them, I said, we can, and my boss said, real-time operations take precedence over planning. And so I told the, you know, the European Command, we can support you at least for 90 days totally. And so it went well, but like I said, there were these rocky spots, and uh, there were a lot of people, after I got eviscerated by the Director of Naval Intelligence at the time, mm. thought that my career is over <laughs> from I that moment. I noticed uh, uh, towards the, uh, as you were, had hit the senior ranks and you were, you were uh, towards the end of the career, you were brought into the whole business of cyber warfare and, and our concern about cyber attacks. I wonder if you can touch on that. Here. Sure. Um, I was assigned to the United States Space Command, and they were the first Department of Defense lead for cyber warfare. And now, of course, it's United States Strategic Command. And the senior intelligence officer looked at me and said, uh, the president has decided that we have to come up with a plan to defend the nation against cyber attacks. And he, and he said, it's your job to figure out how intelligence should support this. He says, I can't tell you what to do or how to do it, just do it. And it's interesting because I, as much as my career uh, has prospered under doing these technical type projects, I'm not a technical person. I'm a political science major. At the time, I only had web TV in my home. I had three computers on my desk at work and had 18 to 20 hour days, so my attitude was, why would I want one of those evil things in my house? And uh, I, that actually made me the best person because I had no preconceived notions. And it, the project involved getting together with over 30 Department of Defense organizations, as well as the intelligence community, and deciding how was intelligence going to support, uh, uh, prevent a cyber attack, and also help us decide what type of cyber weapons we'd like to, to do. And there were a lot in the intelligence community that did not believe it was an intelligence problem. So you had that. Then there were a lot of uh, major commands that had come up with their own cyber uh, policies, and they didn't want to change. You had a lot of the intelligence agencies saying that they didn't want to share databases because they said they didn't want anybody else, any other intelligence organization, to be able to access any of their databases. So what I did, in fact, uh, our the command representative from the, the Defense Intelligence Agency said, Gail, here's what you need to do. He said, you need to hold a conference and set up three working groups and attack the problems that you think most need to be done, because nothing had been done for the preceding few years, and people thought of cyber Pearl Harbor 
was going to happen. There was a war game that the Washingtonians did called Eligible Receiver, and it was the first to look at what would happen if there was a cyber attack against our critical infrastructure. They found out we were basically defenseless. So that plus a scam called Moonlight Maze where they realized for two years some foreign country, we still don't know, we suspect the computers seem to be coming uh, from the probes from Russia, but Russia has always denied it, had been basically going through lots of our files in colleges, universities, and government, unbeknownst. So we said we need to fix this. So I uh, thought about it because I had no authority. My boss told me that I had to leave, but he didn't tell anybody else. So nobody wanted to talk to me or be bothered with me. So I had to, again, put, you know, on I'm here to serve. And so when I called the conference, I decided to attack three problems. It was so huge and nothing had been done. There was no common policy within the intelligence organization, within the intelligence community. So I said there are three problems that we need to address. One is what type of information should we collect so that we can determine uh, what the bad guys, you know, in terms of focusing on the government, not U.S. citizens, uh, foreign governments uh, or organizations might do. Uh, so we need to collect information for that. One, when would the intelligence community send out reports on cyber activity? Uh, only when we think it's coming from a foreign source or are we going to work with, uh, you know, the uh, FBI and other organizations to determine, uh, you know, when it's a foreign attack as opposed to somebody's 17-year-old kid. Uh, and then the third was uh, we had to come up with a way where we could share the databases. Because if you, for instance, are at a military base and all of a sudden you're under cyber attack, you'd, you'd like to know, has this ever happened before? Is this happening to other organizations? If you're sharing databases, then you can quickly do a Google-type search and see what's going on. But if you can't, then you've got to pick up the phone, and that can be very time-consuming. So no one uh, thought that we could do this because there had been so much hate and discontent within the intelligence community on this issue that any conferences they tried to have in the past had been with people screaming and yelling at each other, turf battles, organizational battles. Even within my own organization, there were people who didn't think I should be in charge of the project. But uh, in that conference, uh, we were able that there were key things that I did. First off, I asked for people from other organizations to be in charge of the committee, so it was not someone from my command to show that we truly were in, uh, interested in consensus. The other thing uh, that I did was the senior intelligence officer came over at the end of every day and the committee chairs had to brief them. But I think also most important was we had a military intelligence board at the end of the week where the working group chairs had to get up and talk about their solutions and who was going to take action. So what I counted on was the professional pride of the participants to come up with solutions. The other thing I, I forgot was I had Gail's rules one through 10 that if during these working group sessions, if you came up with a problem in the next breath, you had to have a solution, that if we weren't gonna have a whining session. I said, if anybody violated that rule, I, had, I was gonna take away their bathroom privileges and I had Marines guarding the, the bathrooms to make sure. So we were successful. I call it the greatest uh, collaboration success story never told. <laughs> because in the one week, we did what had not been able to do for the preceding two years. But did that uh, conference in its own way form the basis for what has now become a strategic command set up by uh, uh, Secretary Gates? 
Uh, I think it, it gave the foundation, yeah, for, for all of the efforts. And the reason why I say that is because one of the working groups here is Don Lewis from the Defense Intelligence Agency. He's now retired. He said that when he would go with follow-on sessions and meetings on cyber defense, that he was almost always asked to speak to the conference participants to talk about what we did. And he said people were surprised at a lot of the things that they take for granted and how they do business with the cyber problem. Uh, was solved so quickly and by so many different people because we still have issues today and the strategic command is responsible only for the defense of the military networks. Homeland defense is responsible for the civilian government and they can call on strategic command as needed, but no one has decided who's responsible for the rest and how are we going to operate. Uh, I don't know if you had time to see, I think it was two or three weeks ago, CNN did a special on the Cybershock war game. That's very real, some of the problems uh, that we are facing. We're still not properly organized to defend against a massive cyber attack. And any cyber attack, we can detect it once it's happened, but we cannot see it happening in advance. This, we call it in military intelligence situational awareness. We don't have the situational awareness for cyber defense that we'd like to have right now. I'm, I'm uh, very struck by that because uh, we have just opened a new gallery here at the museum on, we call it weapons of mass disruption, in other words, referring to cyber attacks and the right. threat uh, to our power grid. And we, we ought to make sure you see that before you, before you leave. You know, we have found in the hits that we get on these uh, spy casts that a number of young people listen to us. And here are you, someone who, who is a, uh, a black female who went into the U.S. Navy, perhaps one of the most conservative and traditional hidebound of the military <laughs> services, and you rose to the rank of captain. Uh, and so let me, number one, thank you for your service to our country. You're very But welcome. I ask you what words you might leave with some of the young folks who are listening to us today? I'd say that we really need you in government service if you feel driven. And if you want to come into the field of intelligence in the, on the military side, which is more, I was talking earlier, it's like being an intellectual thrill junkie because you're, especially if you're supporting combat operations, you're going to know if your analysis is right right away. So I'd say come in, and if you don't want to be in the military itself, uh, the bulk of the military intelligence people are civilians. So I'd say uh, if you feel driven, you know, feel that need to come uh, and desire, that I don't think you would find a more rewarding profession, a more exciting profession, uh, lots of travel, lots of exposures to different cultures and different people. And I'd say uh, look at it. I think March the 16th, on uh, the intelligence community, the big intelligence community, all 16 organizations are going to have some kind of job fair or something online. And I should have come with the uh, web address, but I'd say look into it. And, you know, uh, young people are more into surfing the web. Uh, it's amazing what's on the CIA and National Security Agency website. So if you think that that would be something that would interest you, if you're interested in international studies, do that. And the final thing I would say is never let anybody tell you that your dreams can't come true. Okay. Gail Harris, thank you so much for being with us today, and the best of luck to you. Thank you, Peter. Well, we look forward to uh, continuing uh, this dialogue with you, and uh, we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. 
Uh, you can get in touch with us uh, through email at spycast at spymuseum, that's one word, dot org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you.